Good evening, and welcome you to the Monroe Church of Christ Midweek Bible Study. I'm Derek Glover, and I want to welcome all of you, both who are regular attendees at our congregation and those who are watching from elsewhere. We're glad that you could join us as we continue uh, examining how we got our Bible. That's been the course of our study, and it will be through the remainder of this month. Uh, and maybe a little bit into September. We'll just see how things go. We'll try to get it all crammed in here because we've got a little bit to go yet. We've, we've discussed how the origins of our scripture came to be through, we believe, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the providence of God, allowing these things to be compiled and translated. And we followed that down through the ages. And we're in the midst of studying a period of time where the prominent Christian faith was the, uh, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church. And we've examined how that evolved uh, and how it came to be through some political maneuvering of, of people like Constantine to be the predominant uh, faith, really the, the only Christian faith that was practiced in Europe and in the known world at the time. The church exerted a lot of control, both spiritually and politically. And even after the fall of Rome, it still remained a, uh, the, the top political power uh, of Europe. And so it had... Uh, under, its, under its power, uh, many heads of state, monarchs, and the like. And last week we talked about a man named John Huss. John Huss uh, did his work in Bohemia, in the Czech Republic, what we would now call the Czech Republic. And, uh, and he uh, did a lot of writing, and really his writing was just uh, really to carry forth the ideas of John Wycliffe, uh, who had written some time before him. We're nearing closer and closer to what we call the Protestant Reformation. But at the heart of all of that, and this is a little bit of church history, but the heart of all of that is how our scripture survived through that time, because we're talking about a period of time where scripture was locked down. It was kept from the common people. It was rarely understood or used properly, and not even really widely read or understood by the priests themselves and the people who led the church. But the church, in, in light of John Huss, in light of the following that he had in Bohemia and in that part of Europe, they begin cracking down. And one of the ways that they begin cracking down is to outlaw the translation of Scripture into English. Now, obviously, today we have our Scripture in English. We have it in, in dozens of languages throughout the world. And we've seen it translated to this point in our story through the Hebrew, through the Aramaic, through the Greek, through the Latin with the Vulgate, which is now the official version of Scripture. The Latin translation is the official version. It's the only one allowed. And in the 1400s, which is what we're talking about, <clears throat> this period of time following John Huss and following John Wycliffe, uh, they're making it harder, the church is, to get Scripture into your hands in your common language. It must be the Latin because they can control it. And again, I want to make clear we're not trying to speak ill of, of Catholics uh, because there are some really wonderful, good people who are, are part of that church, and that church continues to be a very prominent uh, representation of Christian faith in the world. What we want to acknowledge is the facts of history. And although some of these things have been corrected, it's still important to our story and important to how we got what we have. So the Catholic Church outlaws the translating of Scripture in English because reading is power. When you can read something and you can learn something, you can understand it. And they do not want to lose the power and the prominence of the church. So they go to work stomping out these followers of Wycliffe and followers of Huss, known commonly as the Lollards, which is a word that just means dumb, ignorant, stupid people. 
But the Lollards had developed quite a following, and the Lollards become known in, in an underground sense as the secret society. I want to share with you the 12 treaties uh, of the Lollards, and we've talked a little bit about the, rep, the, the, the repercussions of this in history, that these things that Wycliffe and Huss began discussing were not just influential in Protestantism and in the Reformation, they were also very influential in a period of enlightenment that led to our, the, the founding of our own nation. Some of the, the common ideas that are now codified in our Bill of Rights come from the Lollards. They come from Wycliffe and Huss, who influenced others like Edmund Burke and, and John Locke and, and those. And so <clears throat> I want to share with you, these are the 12 treaties, 12 treatises of the, uh, the Lollards. First of all, the church is not to be involved in politics. In other words, and, and the way they worded it literally, there should be a separation between the church and the state. And we have a separation of church and state in, in, our, in our culture, in, in our history. Uh, they believe that the priesthood, the idea that there were a select class of people who were allowed to read and to share and to disseminate the, the concepts of Scripture, they believe that that idea was unscriptural, the priesthood was unscriptural. They were against the teaching and the doctrine of the celibacy of priests. They were against the doctrine of transubstantiation. Now, we think of transubstantiation as the idea that the bread and the cup that we partake of during communion, according to that doctrine, literally becomes the body and blood of Christ. And therefore, they transfer to those sacraments the importance and the significance of that, and it was kept from the common people. You're not allowed to handle it. You're not allowed to partake in it unless you are you know, given permission to. And this created a hierarchy. This created a class division. So they were against this doctrine of transubstantiation because they believed the Bible didn't teach it, and it was used as a tool to separate others. They were against the teachings on exorcism. They were against the, they believed it was inappropriate for the people to hold a high office in the church as well as to hold a high office in politics at the same time. Again, that separation. They taught against the prayers for the dead, the idea that when your loved one died, you could pay to have someone pray for them, or you could pray for them and get them out of the purgatory, which was a teaching of the Catholic Church, and into heaven, because again, that was used to fleece people out of money and to enrich the priest and enrich the church. So they taught against that. They were against the idea of pilgrimages. They were against the, the idea and the doctrine of confession not the way we understand it in the Protestant world, but the way that they did it in the Catholic world, which was you go and you talk to the priest and tell him every bad thing you've done. Again, something probably with a, a strong and spiritual origin that had become corrupted. They were pacifists, uh, and, and not in the sense that they were against all war, but they were certainly against war waged by the church. They believed the, that the church had no business um, drawing conflict uh, and, of course, there were many crusades that the Catholic Church went on in different parts of the world. They were against the female vows of celibacy, like with nuns and, and other consecrated people. And part of the reason for this was that when those vows were broken and one would become pregnant, oftentimes they had to have an abortion. And they were very much against the, the practice of abortion. And so they were against these vows of celibacy. And they were also... Uh, believed in modesty when it came to finances, and they were against the, the money that was spent to build grand cathedrals. And, and trust me, I love uh, 
these beautiful cathedrals that have been built throughout history, but, uh, but, uh, but they were very much against and felt it was inappropriate for that to be where the church was spending its money. So the Inquisition begins. The, 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 the Inquisition was a time when agents of the church would go into a community and find those who were teaching heresy as they defined it, and they would force them uh, to recant or they would be killed. They would be put to death. Uh, the Inquisition also involved uh, the edict that all books, all written materials must be licensed by the church, and all preachers must have a license to preach. So the church held all the power in what you could send out, what you could put out into the community in the written word and in the spoken word when it came to scripture. And if you violated this, then they would take your license, or if you violated their doctrine, they would take your license. But if you preached without a license, then you were subject to this inquisition and possibly death. So it was a way for them to control the message. It was a way for them to control what was being shared. And now we come to Germany, the country of Germany in the year 1454 where we find a man named Gutenberg. And that name is well known in our history because he did something that transformed the world forever. The arduous task of translating scripture and copying scripture and disseminating those copies was so expensive and so time consuming. To reproduce an entire Bible, to copy down word for word the scripture so it could be given to someone else or shared, to do that, took about 18 months. Now consider what it would take for you to dedicate 18 months of your life to something. Not just the time, but the financial implications of that. If you wanted to undertake such a process, you're talking about a year and a half worth of salary that you've got to find a way to to make up for, which equates to the cost of paying someone to do this. So because it took that long, and, and, and when they used printing presses, they would take blocks of wood and they would carve into the wood the letters that they wished to print. They would put ink on that and press that to the paper and you would have one page. Then you would start over making the next page. Well, this man Gutenberg decided that seemed a little bit foolish, so he began experimenting with taking smaller blocks and carving individual letters. And then he could put the letters where he wanted them make an impression, and then move the letters around and do it again. And that meant he could reuse these letters and make more of them. And suddenly, rather than 18 months of of pressing these prints uh, to get an entire Bible, it could be done in a matter of weeks. This drastically reduced the cost of reproducing Bibles and reproducing Scripture. It drastically reduced the amount of time and energy required to do so it completely changed the world. This is one of those seminal moments in human history where we found a way to take knowledge that we had through the written word and reproduce it in mass quantities very quickly. Nothing compared to what we can do today. Uh, We don't even need paper and ink today. We can do things digitally. But in their time, this was life-changing, life-altering. It changed the course of the world And we moved from 18 months of work to weeks of work in order to translate, uh, or rather to to copy, the scripture. And the power of reading unleashed knowledge. Now I want you to consider this, and this will be a theme through the rest of this study. The things that God is doing, and I believe that God is at work, the providence of God is at work, to make some of these things happen at the same time. 
So here's Gutenberg, and he's invented movable type, and he's changed the way that we approach written word. At the same time, in the, in the years uh, leading up to that, the common language of English began to be, uh, be, began to be solidified, and it began to be, have some uniformity to it. Uh, we united the language of English, and now for the first time, something written in one part of England could be read in another part of England or in another part of Europe because the English language was a, a, <laughs> it was a bit messy. It's not like we think of English today. So when the English language began to be standardized, and at the same time, we have these innovations coming about with written word and movable type, you have a man named Thomas Linacre. Now, he was born just five years after this printing press with movable type um, was invented. And just a few years after his birth, there was the birth of a man named John Collette and a man named Erasmus. We'll talk a little bit about them this week and next week. And then after them, a man named Luther, Martin Luther, was born. And following that, William Tyndale was also born. So here are some very important figures that we'll get to later, but they all are born and begin to learn from the writings of John Wycliffe and John Huss and these early reformers, and they're influenced by it, and they're able to share their ideas and their discoveries with so many more people because of what Gutenberg did. So look at all these things happening at once. It's fascinating. Thomas Linacre had an incredible life. He was a scholar of the highest order. Uh, he held many, many doctorates, of course in theology, which was considered the highest of all, all studies, but also in philosophy and in languages and in the sciences. He was a, a medical doctor as well. Now, here's something else going on during this time, and that is the spread of Islam. The Ottoman Empire was the preeminent Muslim uh, empire of the time, and they began to conquer more and more territory. And then the first thing to fall is Constantinople, which, of course, we know today as Istanbul in, in modern-day Turkey. So the Ottoman Empire uh, takes over Constantinople, renames it, um, uh, Byzantium was the name of it prior to Constantine getting there, but it was Byzantium, then it was Constantinople, and now, in this time, the, the, uh, the Ottoman Empire, the Turks, the Muslims, have taken over that part of the world, and Constantinople falls, and that's a big blow to Christianity. And they begin to take over other parts of Europe, Hungary, the southern part of Spain, and in all of these places, in all of these places, uh, Constantinople uh, being the domino that fell first, Christianity and Christians are pushed out. They're driven out of these cities and out of these places. Now imagine you're a Christian, and what does it mean to you if you see the city of your faith fall? And what does it mean to you if suddenly you as a Christian are a refugee being cast out of your own country? Well, it might cause you to think that Jesus had lost that Christianity was losing. And if that's the case, it might cause you to examine some things. And we'll come back to that. Because there's another effect of these Christians being driven out of these places. They go and, and are forced to live in refugee camps all over Europe. And Thomas Linacre begins working in these camps. He was a man of great compassion. And he worked with them, and he listened to them, and cared for them, and looked after them. But these people coming from all parts of the world brought with them literature and books that they had that had not yet been seen in parts of Europe. The works of Aristotle and the works of Plato and the works of these great philosophers, yes, but also ancient scriptures in Greek 
and in other languages that were older than anything that these people in Europe had seen because the Catholic Church didn't allow that. They didn't allow those things out. And these ancient copies what we talked about several, several weeks ago in the Greek, the Septuagint and these other translations, they were still there. They still had them and they brought them with them. And Lineker began to look at them and read them. And he, studied, he knew the languages. He, he was proficient in many, many languages, about eight languages, I think it was, he was proficient in. And he read them and he understood them and he saw that what they had in the Latin, the Catholic Church, the official church, the Vulgate, that it was starkly different. There were some mistakes. There was some corruption. There were some things that had been changed uh, in, 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 in disappointing ways from the original language. So he, what he saw made him think, and it caused him to want to study further, to see that the scripture they had was corrupted, and it was not what the uh, original text said, and it's not what these ancient texts said. And here are these Christians fleeing from their own homes, refugees, thinking Christianity may be lost, and yet what God was doing in that time was getting the words back to the people, and it's a long, arduous journey. But God is working through this event to bring about major change and major reform. So Lineker saw these texts, and he said, he wrote, we still have the note that he wrote, either I am wrong or these are not scripture. These are not the, the or we do not have the scripture as, as it was written. So he joined with the Lollards and the secret society. And he told John Collette, his contemporary, that the Latin Bible, the Vulgate, has been corrupted and it contains many errors and many mistakes that are leading to some of these terrible doctrines that are being used to oppress people. Colette was so troubled by this that he himself went to Italy in order to compare the Greek text to the Latin text and see for himself. In 1496, the two of them went to Oxford together, and there they wrote the first book of Greek grammar. Now, why is that important? Well, it was the first time that anyone who spoke a certain language could now look and teach themselves Greek. This was the first Greek textbook. These two men put together a tool, a tool that could be used by the common man to learn the Greek so that they could read the scriptures for themselves and understand what it really said and not just what the church says that it said. Now, along this same, uh, time, and again, the theme here is the events that are happening, God's providence, these things that are coming together. Around this time, King Henry VIII, was the king of England. Uh, he needed a personal physician. He was in very poor health, had many, many things wrong with him. So he looked through the land for the best doctor, and those who answered him said that the best physician that you can find is this man named Thomas Linacre. So Linacre becomes the personal physician to King Henry. Now, at this time, also, King Henry had been gotten kind of tired of killing his wives and decided that he wanted to divorce them instead, and the church wouldn't allow it. So he's looking for any excuse to break from the Catholic Church. And here he meets Thomas Lineker, this man with these, these ideas and these thoughts and these convictions that have come out of being able to read the ancient texts. And they begin talking about Scripture. And God brings these people together to produce change that will come. So as books and Scripture are getting further and further into Europe, through Austria and Germany and into Hungary and and in places in Western Europe, Christians are now thinking 
Because what happens when you think that your faith is falling? What happens when you see your cities crumbling? What happens when you see your people and your people of your faith being driven out of land? You begin wondering, what have we done wrong? Have, have we made a mistake somewhere? Has God turned his back on us? And they begin examining. So there is, there is now the material available from these refugees. There's the ability to translate and understand this language, thanks to uh, Lineker and Colette in their writings of the, uh, the Greek grammar. And there is an attitude that is pervasive through Europe of saying we should examine what we've done and, and are we on the right track. So these attitudes and these materials and also the technology of the printing press are coming together. And so they begin looking at these things. The, by the way, these texts that we've already talked about, these, the Septuagint, the, the works of, of some of the early translators and people who put these things together. Colette was so inspired by what he learned that he took and quoted the words of Paul in public without a license. One of the bravest things any man has ever done in the name of the scriptures. He quoted the words of Paul. And if, if this doesn't run chills up your spine, I want you to think about it. Next time you're sitting in a church service or reading your Bible, I want you to consider how common what you hear is to you. I want you to consider how ordinary it is for someone to quote the words of Paul. And now consider that when uh, John Colette did this, when he quoted these words from Paul in public, it was the first time in over a thousand years that the words of Paul had been spoken out loud in public in the language of the people who heard it, in their common language. And he believed in, in letting Paul speak, so he preached many sermons that were not sermons at all. He simply read the words of Paul. And he even said to the crowd, Rome does not trump Paul. The words of Rome do not trump the words of Paul. So now he's, he has inspired the ire of Rome, the Roman Catholic Church. And so they set out to get him. Understand that they didn't... Uh, the Roman Catholic Church did not look at Scripture or handle Scripture the way we do. We view it as the inspired word of God. We view it as his instruction, his revelation, his gospel. They looked at it, and early, their early translators, like Jerome and others, looked at it, at Origen, another early, um, early translator, looked at it allegorically. So when they read, for instance, the story of Noah, well, that wasn't the story about a man uh, and a boat. That was uh, uh, some mysticism. They, they injected this mystic allegory into it that you had to consider the dimensions of the ark, and that translated to something else, and then the number of animals translated to something else, and which animals, and they would apply all these mystic sort of secret codes and things to, uh, to the story and build a doctrine around it. So they handled it very differently than we handle Scripture today, but Colette was challenging these ideas by showing what the Scripture actually taught and speaking it to people in a way they understood it. Uh, one thing that protected John Collette during this time was the fact that his father was the mayor of London. Uh, mayor of London is very powerful, second only to the king uh, of England in terms of power. Uh, to this day, if the prime minister of Great Britain wants to visit London, he must have permission from the mayor of London. Uh, this is a very prestigious position even today, and the mayor of London controlled the gates, controlled the city, and protected him. Also, his friendship with Henry VIII. 
uh, kept the church at bay. But Colette broke the law. He broke the law by teaching in English at Oxford. Not just theology, but all of the, the, the sciences and all of academia was mandated by the church to be taught in Latin. They did not want to let go of control of the language in what was being taught so they could control what was being taught. And Colette broke this law. Latin was considered a holy language, and he taught in English. He openly criticized the Latin Vulgate. And so when he began doing that, he was then threatened, threatened with death and expelled from Oxford. So he fled to parts of, to, he fled east to other parts of Europe. And he found his way to Switzerland. Switzerland has an interesting place in history because it, we always talk about Switzerland as being neutral and what have you. But the Swiss have a really interesting culture. I live in Monroe in the midst of probably the, the most uh, heavily Swiss-influenced part of the country. A lot of Swiss settlers came to the upper Midwest, particularly southern Wisconsin, Madison, down to Monroe. We'll find a lot of Swiss influence here. Um, but Switzerland is an incredible country an incredible place because of they're kind of cloistered, protected in the mountains. Even Hitler went around Switzerland uh, because they are, have a well-trained military. Uh, they, they, they have a culture that provided a safe haven for John Colette. So he, he uh, escaped there and was protected by the mountains of Switzerland. And in this time, he published a translation of the Bible that was a parallel Greek and Latin translation. And he included notes in the margin that pointed out the errors and doctrinal mistakes that have been made in the Latin translation of scripture. So he, now he's attacking the very foundations of the Catholic church by attacking their translation of scripture and their um, understanding of scripture by going back to the original text. Now we left the original, and I say original text, not the autographs, not, the, not what was written by the hand of, say, Ezra or whoever, but what was written and manuscripted and copied and translated and recopied. We talked about that. We left those weeks ago, and now they're making an appearance again because John Colette uh, and Thomas Linacre got their hands on them, and they were able to see the mistakes and see the errors and see the problems with these translations. And now he publishes this parallel Greek and Latin so, so people can read what the church says the Bible says and what the manuscripts say that the Bible says. And they also had a, 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 a lexicon, a Greek grammar textbook produced by Colette and Lineker in order to help them understand this. All of these things happening at the same time in the same period of time, allowing the people to get closer and closer and closer to holding it in their hand. This is the beginning of the death of the Latin Vulgate, the beginning of the death of the official translated scripture of the church that had become so corrupted and had become such a weapon to oppress people. Now, why is all of this important? Again, let's take it back to our theme because we've covered how all of these things came to be. But now God is helping to make a correction take place. The Bible had become so in, entwined and twisted up and turned around with the political and spiritual machinations of powerful people. And he leads some things to happen. 
the refugees coming from these countries now occupied by Islam, the attitudes of the people fleeing who, who are uh, searching and seeking and, and ready to learn what it is they've done wrong and the literature they brought with them, falling into the hands of people like Lineker and Colette and their knowledge and expertise to produce grammar of the Greek to allow people to compare Latin and Greek. And now here is Colette in Switzerland writing a copy of the Bible in Greek and in Latin for the people to read and judge for themselves. And what is next door to the country of Switzerland? Germany, full of movable type printing presses to allow these words to be copied and published and disseminated. Look at what God did. Look at what God did when, when man, when people, began to twist and distort and become confused with Scripture, with the Word and, and what it reveals. And how did God bring about that correction? Well, He led to some things that weren't really fun. They weren't easy, but they brought attitudes and materials and technology together that allowed people to search the Scriptures, the Greek grammar, the Greek New Testament, the printing press, Lineker, Colette, Gutenberg. And not long after them, Erasmus. And we're going to talk about Erasmus next week. And we're going to talk about a man named William Tyndale. And we're going to talk about the super spies of the Reformation. God's spies that were sneaking this word around, that were preaching and proclaiming this word. And I mean, this, this is uh, beautiful stories, exciting stories, stories that make good movies uh, of how they helped get the scriptures out and into the hands of people. They wanted the common man to have the Bible. Today, you and I have an abundance of collections of Scripture, and we have that because of the work, the brave work that some of these men did. So we'll talk more about that next week. I hope you'll continue on this journey with me. It's fascinating, and it's fun, and it's exciting, and it makes me grateful and oh so thankful to God that he led this to be so that I can understand him through these words. Thanks for joining me. We'll see you next time.